invite you to take out your sermon notes, uh, or for some, doodle notes, or whatever you need. Um, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, and this is just a reminder that we will be taking communion today, so if you didn't uh, pick up the elements as you walked in, feel free to uh, get up and get those or to send someone for those. Um, have you ever realized that trying to learn to ride a bike is different for those that are trying to teach someone to ride a bike? I mean, I, I don't really remember trying to learn. I remember the bike that I learned on, um, but I don't remember the process. I, I, in, without a shadow of a doubt, remember trying to teach my kids to ride a bike. Um, let's say there were a few disagreeable words between us, you know, and they had to put their faith in me or learn to even more put my, their faith in me. And I had a renewal of that lesson not too long ago is um, I got to help my nieces learn how to ride a bike. I am, you know, in one of the processes of that is walking alongside, but for them to really learn to ride a bike, they have to go fast enough. That's, that, you know, that's one of the lessons that they have to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to tell them how to ride a bike. And telling them is, is very different until they cl- it clicks in their head. And, and it's this balance thing, and do I trust it enough? To, you know, because one of the first things you want to do when you get going is put your foot down. And you've got to trust and lean into the bike. And, and you've got to go fast enough to keep the momentum. And that's when this old uncle had a hard time. And so I would let go. And then they, they're doing okay, and they look back and go, oh. And that's usually when they started leaning and, and falling and all that process. But the thing is, when we fall, it's not the bike's fault, usually. It's, it's that we've lost confidence when, you know, when we're learning, we, we've lost momentum, we've, we've, we've lost focus of where we're going, but the biggest thing I had to teach them is you've got to pedal. You know, you haven't learned to balance well enough just to glide. I remember that moment, but, but you've got to pedal. You've got to do the work. And Paul as he writes this letter, is trying to encourage the church, you've got to lean into this. You've got to do the work. He's not concerned um, about the Colossians riding bikes. That would be a whole different kind of letter. Um, But he is concerned for their spiritual uh, welfare. Paul's desire, as it's stated in in chapter 1, is that they would that he would be able to present everyone complete in Christ, that, that there would be this understanding that every believer is called to a lifelong pursuit of Christ, that we would, we would want to be more like Christ, and we would understand that it doesn't achieve until that point of when Christ comes back and we get to see him face to face. That God continues in this process with us to work with us and to conform us to the images of his son. That as we've said over and over before that you know, God loves us just the way we are but he loves us enough not to leave us that way. And so Paul 
He, he wants us to continue learning to ride the bike. To con- in, in this word, he, he really uses the word walk. It, we understand it as our Christian walk, or it can also be tr- translated as our Christian life, but Paul desires to be used by God to help the church learn to live into its calling. And so he, he really gets under this understanding if we're going to learn how to live for Christ, we have to understand who Christ is. And so from the very beginning, he outlines who Christ is in this lofty poem and shares this overwhelming truth that as we lean into who knowing who God is, that we would be drawn together in unity, that, that, that would be based not on our personal preferences or personal styles or even personal uh, experience, but that would be unity based on who Christ is in and of himself. And so he understands that if the church is to truly know who God is. If we're to intimately understand who God is, then we would be con- fully convinced that God is more than enough. His supremacy and his sufficiency is more than enough for anything that we're going to face. And and so that we wouldn't be led astray by the false logic and the pervasive and persuasive speech of teachers that might come our way in the world. So this morning in chapter 2, and we're just going to look at two verses, verses 6 and 7 this morning, that we, Paul begins to lay out these practical ways. He said we've got to look to Christ. We've got to focus in on who Christ is. And in, in doing that, we would have a practical understanding of how that lives out because walking in Christ begins to provide the best protection of falling away when we look at the superiority of Christ. And so the first thing we, he says is, is a reminder. It's already happened. He, he says this in the very beginning, that this has already happened, and it's a basis for, for them in their continuation of walking, is that they have received Christ. They received him in the past, and they continue to walk in him in the present. To receive is to accept or take delivery of something that has been given or presented. It's a pretty simple definition. But they have taken in who Christ is in order to live into him. And so from the very beginning of the letter, we know that the Colossians at some point have received the message of hope that is in Christ. And they have responded. And as a result... They are living it out, their faith, by loving one another. And he doesn't want them to lose the energy. He doesn't want them to stop pedaling. You know, it's it's a poor analogy. I know it breaks down at some point, but it's the one I got this morning. It'd be like saying, well, I go out for a walk every morning. And I do. I have about a three-mile walk every morning. I drag the dog or he drags me. But it'd be like saying, if, you know, I'm going to go for a walk and I get out to the corner and I just stand there. I have a choice. I can say I, I walked or I can really walk and, and, and learn to progress 
And so he receives what they've received Christ. Now in verse 6, they're saying that they've received something very specific. Christ Jesus the Lord. We don't want to forget that the term Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It's, it's the anointed one. That they have been instructed and have accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah who is the Lord. Two very significant titles being given here. As Messiah, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies that, that have pointed to this uh, one from even back to Moses and the prophets that followed over the centuries. The identification as Jesus as the Messiah, the, the Christ, is not just a title. It's a designation of his deity, his identity, that he is the very Son of God. And Lord is not just a title that like Sir that we would use as title of respect. It's a designation of his position as master because he is God. Paul's designation of Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Lord, destroys all the arguments that can come against him that, that these other false teachers were trying to make Jesus as something less or other than God himself in human flesh. And he says, if you understand Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, complicates, there's no complication. He is that. There's nothing else you need to say. So for Paul, that they have received Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as Lord, and they have put their faith in him, and, and he understands that to turn to the light that we understand Christ to be also means that you can't look at the light and be also looking at the darkness. That there is a repentance that has happened. That they used to be headed this way into the darkness of this world. But now they have turned toward the light and they are headed this way. Don't be confused and try to go back and forth. And so this change of mind that has resulted in a change of direction, and that direction has to result in a life that looks different than it did before. And so there's some practicality, this ethic of belief that Paul gets into, and he says you have to walk in Christ. Live in Christ. He says you're going to continue uh, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the Lord, it says in verse 10 of chapter 1. So we've received Christ. We believe who he is. We believe he's done everything that needs to be done. And we continue as a result to live in a manner that re reflects that reality that Jesus is, in fact, our Lord. Our actions, our attitudes, our motivations should be guided by the Spirit of God who now lives within us because of our belief. And so that people would be able to see the living Christ through us. Walking in Christ 
is not something that occurs and is instantly complete. Walking in Christ, as much as we would love that to be the sense, you know, well, I accepted him and it's all done. I'm perfect now. Christ, walking in him is something that begins at that point. There is a starting point where I put my faith, I put my trust in him, but now I have to continue as I move it through life to lean into him. I have to keep moving. That I can't rest. That I can't just get lax and say, well, it was good enough back then. That I have to keep discipline and daily surrender to Christ. And the more that I do that, the more my life will change to look like his. And so walking in Christ is what happens when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, as it says in Romans chapter 12. And that as we do that, as we continue to give over our life, we give over our mindset, we give over all the attributes of my life to Christ, that I would conform it to him, that that would be the result of a living and holy sacrifice to God that is ongoing. Walking in Christ is the logical and normal result of believing in Jesus as the Messiah and receiving him as Lord of my life. In verse 7, Paul gives us, and we're going to get into some grammar. Understand, I am not a grammar person. Um, That would be Allie, our teacher here, and many other teachers um, that we have. Uh, We're going to get into participles. I, I would have never thought preaching the gospel would include participles. And knowing what participles are, I had to Google what a participle was. Um, the, the simplified thing is a word formed from a verb. Would, would you agree? Okay, thank you. I can get a check mark. Huh? Gold star, even better. So, so Paul uses these four participles to describe a proper, how a proper walk with Christ will reveal itself. The first in this verse is that it would be firmly rooted. Now as you can tell, the rooted word is, is an agricultural term. In this type of participle, it, there, there's different functions of the participle, reflects a and indicates something that has happened to us and is continuing to happen in our life. Something that, that be, someone that believes Jesus is the Messiah and has received and continues to receive him as Lord will be firmly rooted. You may remember Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 13. A sower is spreading a seed out which falls on four different types of soil and four different, very different results happen. Jesus explained the parable to his disciples because like us often, we don't get it. And and he tells them that the seed was the proclamation of God's kingdom. And the different results are based on the different, where the seed landed in the soil. 
The first soil was beside the road. And these type of people, this soil is represented by those who hear but do not understand. And the evil one quickly snatches away what understanding that they have just as birds will quickly pick up the seed that is exposed. The second soil is, was the rocky places. And this is the person who hears and quickly responds with joy. But since there's no real depth of belief, as soon as hard times come, the person falls away like a plant with shallow roots, is withered and scorched. The third soil is, is the soil with thorns. This is the person who hears and, and, and it, the word sprouts, but the worries of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke it out and it bears no fruit. The fourth soil, though, so the fourth soil is the good ground that allows the, the plant to sink its roots deep. This is the, the person who hears and understands, and it results in a growth in, in fruit that bears out of that life. Those who hear and live in, in Christ have been firmly rooted in the Colossian church as a whole has, has, has demonstrated this. They've demonstrated their response to the gospel, but now there's this danger that, that some among them might not be as well-rooted as, as they think they are. And Paul is seeking to cultivate them, to aerate, and to, to, to drive that, those roots deeper so that adversity and weeds of false teachers wouldn't take them away. But it doesn't just end with being firmly rooted the next result of walking with Christ is being built up in him. It's an ar- architectural reference. This participle indicates something that not just happened, but continues to happen. It, it's current. Though there were certainly some building up of the past, if we walk in Christ, as I said, he doesn't leave us there, that we are still being built up and will continue to be built up until either we pass from this earth into the presence of God or Jesus comes. It's important to understand, though, that this is a plural participle. It is called to the church. Paul's pointing out that the believers together are being built up in him. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul explains that God gives spiritual gifts to his followers for the purpose of building up, of them working together to do the ministry which continues to, to grow the entire body. And it matures and it builds up in love. And God, God actively builds up the local body. Through us, as we are called to himself. And we only will live into God's mission that he has for us as long as we walk and we work together. Each living into God, who who God has called them to be within the context of the body. The next mark of walking in Christ, though, is that we are being firmly established in faith. 
This one also is, is not just happened, but is continuing to happen. The, the idea of this word is, is to make firm, to secure, to have stable and, and established. It, it, it describes the nature of what is being built. It's not enough just to build a large structure. If you've ever played Jenga, you understand this. It's, it's that there needs to be strength in the building or when things happen, it will collapse. Our, our faith in, is firmly rooted. It's built up in, in securely upon the truth of Christ. And as we walk in Him, our faith continues to increase and strengthen as we remain firm, even when we encounter trials that will test us. This analogy is comes from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. The, the contrast is, is between a house built on sound of hear, the sand of hearing but ignores the word of Christ and, and the house built on the rock of hearing and obedience in Christ. The storms of life come against both. We can't miss that. But the house on the rock remains firm while the house on the sand collapses. The only difference between those two houses is the foundation. Life lived apart from Christ collapses because the storms of life will undermine it. They also have faith in things they believe, but the difficulties of life prove that their belief is false. That they got their eyes off of Christ. A life lived based on following Jesus is tested, but remains standing because the foundation is solid. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Every test of our faith can increase our confidence in Christ. And what Jesus has said is true, and that he keeps his promises to the nth degree. Those who walk in Christ continue to be strengthened in their faith. The result of all those that truly walk in Christ and that are keeping moving, that, that are keeping going, that they are leaning into Christ is that they would live a life worthy of the gospel and that their life will overflow with thanksgiving. This is the only participle in that entire list that indicates something that believers do in response to what God has done or is doing. Having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and being established in faith, their life in Christ would result in a thanksgiving for what God had and continues to do in their life. Paul has already said that, that the believers are thankful and, and to be thankful, but he intensifies it by saying that it would be this overflowing thankfulness. That our life would result in something that we can't contain what God is doing. That our thanksgiving for what God has done and continues to do would pour out of our lives. That, it would, that thankfulness shouldn't be a trickle from the fellowship as water does from a leaky faucet. Rather, it would be so full as overflowing 
Paul is speaking about thanksgiving that is expressed publicly, not just in private worship, not even in a holy huddle. What, what Paul is trying to describe here is, is a life that constantly is overflowing with what God has done and continues to do, that you can't get away from it. I mean, one bucket after another, it just continues to flow. You don't, you don't have to worry about there not being enough. Because where Christ is, there is abundance. This is a thanksgiving that occurs in all circumstances. Paul's already said, here I am, bound in chains, and yet I give thanks for you and for what God has called me to do. A Christian has to remain committed in response to the message of Christ and thankful for the message of Christ. Let me wrap it up this way this morning. As I, as I thought on this passage, if we, as the church, as believers, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord of our life, if we, as those very people, don't allow God to transform our lives to the point that our thankfulness overflows, then what do you think could, would, or should appeal to someone that doesn't believe? If your very life in response to Christ isn't an advertisement for what Christ can do, what do you think will be? Throughout the book of Acts, it's the response of the disciples and the people that put their faith in Christ, even to the point of death in the Colosseum, or on the cross, or any other numbers of ways, and putting in jail, they didn't care. It couldn't be stopped because of what Christ has done in their life. That their hope wasn't found in just living a good life. Their hope was found in the message of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for them. That they were made right not by their behavior, not by possessions, not by how much money was in the bank. Their life was made right by Jesus Christ's blood and resurrection. If, faith, if your faith in Christ isn't transforming your life and giving you the kind of hope that is contagious and overflowing for thankfulness, why would anybody else want that? What we see lived out by the disciples after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit set them free was a passionate walk that overflowed in everything that they did. Everything that they did. It wasn't a faith of convenience. It was the transforming power of Christ alone. And just like it was then, it continues to be today. Where is your faith? Where is your hope? Are you just trying to coast in this walk of life? Or have you firmly put your feet on the foundation of Christ?
and continuing to lean into that. That is the only hope we have. It's the only power that there is to give us eternal life. It's the only power that's truly going to set us free. Christ gave us a thing to remember that by. As he sat with his disciples on the same night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. As you can hear, there's little cellophane <laughs> holding the two elements. I invite you to pull off the first one and hold the bread. We'll take it together. And then there's a separate with a little tin to partake of the juice together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, God, help us to continue to lean into who you are, to better understand that you've taken care of everything. That doesn't mean we stop, though, because the sacrifice of your life, while enough and more than sufficient, calls us to more than a life of this world. And so as we take these elements today, we are reminded of your calling to us to pick up our cross and follow you. That we would be known as your disciples by the love that results, by the life that is transformed and continues to be transformed into your likeness. May we come before you in true humility this morning. May we put our faith fully in you and the work of your cross and the power of your resurrection as we partake of this holy sacrament today through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Now our challenge, as we depart today, be the church. Live into who God has called you to be as holy representatives of who he is. Each with your own skills and gift sets, but anointed and blessed to live a life that is worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. Go and be blessed.